Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 7th, 2023. We're having a a bit of a decline of Western civilization kind of day today. We started with the very distinguished British philosopher, political philosopher, John Gray, has a new book out, The New Leviathans, Thoughts After Liberalism, his explanation, and I guess vindication of our chaotic world and the crisis of American leadership and of liberalism generally. And then we moved on to a New York Times writer, Rob Copeland, who has written this uh, rather critical, damning biography uh, of Ray Dalio. Uh, I entitled the uh, the show that we just did uh, "An Unprincipled Man for an Unprincipled Time." But of course, it's novelists who do the best job of making sense of decay, of decay, and of uh, unprincipled times. Novelists like. Uh, the great British writer Virginia Woolf, who wrote Mrs. Dalloway back in 1925, which exposed the crisis of the First World War and the emptiness, I guess, of British upper-class society. It's novelists who always do the best job getting to the heart of decay and crisis in cultural, political, economic terms. So I'm thrilled that we are doing a bit of literature now, having done John Gray as a philosopher um, and uh, Copeland as uh, a journalist. We're now doing our literary turn on the crisis of Western civilization with one of America's leading novelists, Lisa Gornick. She has a new book out. It's out today, Anna Turns. And uh, the Mrs. Dalloway link wasn't just a throwaway. It's a book very much built around or inspired by Mrs. Dalloway. Virginia Woolf, of course, is Mrs. Dalloway. And I'm thrilled and honored that Lisa is joining us from her uptown Manhattan apartment. Lisa, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Andrew. I'm really thrilled to be here and to have a chance to talk about it. So, uh, so the, the the Virginia Woolf piece, the Mrs. Dalloway piece. How core is this to your narrative? Well, by no means do, would I dare to say that I am um, rewriting Mrs. Dalloway, but it's a very important book to me. I love the way that she goes in and out of minds. I love the way that it's a deeply personal story, but it's totally framed by the events of the day, uh, the post-traumatic stress that um, one feels in, in the characters and the ending of a certain kind of Victorian era that's, that's present there. So, but most of all, the way that she tells the story of Clarissa Dalloway in one day so that we track Clarissa from the moment she leaves her house to go buy flowers for her party till the end of the party. But by the end of this very short, condensed novel, we know her whole life. So I was inspired by that. I can say that. Uh, the, the fictional character at the heart of the book, uh, Anna Turns, is Anna Cole. Tell us about her and, and, and does she share 
characteristics with Mrs. Dalloway, Clarissa Dalloway? Well, I think she shares a certain kind of consciousness with Clarissa in that they're both very alive to the world around them. I think they both, in sort of unconscious ways, um, both sense and absorb other people's emotions. And they are both very struck by beauty in the world and thinking about what it is that's going to bring them joy in, in this chapter of their lives. Now, Clarissa is 51 and Anna is turning 60. The book takes place on her 60th birthday. Uh, and Clarissa experiences her way, herself in many ways as an old woman at 51. Anna at 60 does not experience herself as an old woman, but she's aware that she's entering a new chapter of life. I've read Mrs. Dalloway, but it was a while ago. Um, and what I remember is uh, the world she's describing still seems rather, and I use this word carefully, shell-shocked, of course, coming out of the First World War. Uh, it, it's a world, maybe she isn't writing about the decline or death of Western civilization, but she's certainly writing about a society that isn't quite right. Is, is the society in Anna Turns, um, is it not quite right too? Well, it's set in 2017, so I think the whole country was shell-shocked in America by the election of Donald Trump and what that meant. And still, in some ways, shell-shocked by 9-11. Uh, and my character is, on a personal level, trying to adjust and grapple with the news that her adult child is transitioning. So the whole radical shift in the way we understand gender, um, I'm not sure if I would say shell-shocked, but she's still struggling to integrate and understand this. Are, are you 100% sympathetic on this? Is there an element of fictional irony here? Um, or are you inhabiting your characters? Do you Philosophically, mean well, some people might write a, a a book featuring transitioning. It's it's an incredibly controversial subject, as you know. Are you sympathetic to that culture with its focus on transition and gender and identity, or are you keeping your distance as a writer and scratching your head, perhaps a little bit like Virginia Woolf, and scratching your head, one foot in, one foot out, and thinking, is this quite right? Do I am I entirely sympathetic with this world that I'm a part of and yet I'm also observing? Well, it, I would not have felt able to write from the perspective of a, of a transitioning person. Anna is writing from the perspective of a mother who is attempting to understand her adult child. And in a way, it doesn't really matter what she thinks. And that's what she comes to understand, that what matters is that she not be so presumptuous as to tell her adult child that she understands them better than they do themselves. And that it is really her job to not judge or evaluate the whole larger situation, but to uh, to accept and understand her child for who they are. And from that point of view, I would say it's really much larger than the question of gender roles. That it's, 
it's, it's an issue for the parents of all adult children that um, at, at what point do we understand that it's no longer our role to tell them who they are? So I hope I'm not dodging that question. <laughs> and, uh, well, you, you are, but you're dodging it in an elegant way, which uh, we would all dodge that question. You wear more than one hat too, Anna. I, whoops, that was a Freudian error. Yeah, that was. Lisa, <laughs> Lee, I, won't, I will try not to call you Anna. Lisa, um, you wear more than one hat. You're a novelist, but you're also an academic and a, an expert in, in, in psychotherapy. In terms of inhabiting one's kids, I have 20, I have kids in their 20s too, so I understand this as well as any other parent or as little as any other parent. Um, do you think as a novelist you have to be careful to assume that you know your characters better than they do? That the characters are themselves? Yeah. Uh, I think you have to, yes. I think that novelists need to know their characters as well as they know themselves. And one of the, part of the way Anna Turns is structured is that the Anna's story runs like a spine through the book and we follow her, but interspersed are chapters by other key figures in her life. And so we understand and get to know um, things that touch on Anna's life from these other perspectives. And some of them are stories that the reader knows, but Anna doesn't know. She may sense them, but they enlarge our way of understanding Anna. So as a novelist, I do feel like I have to inhabit my characters and know them as well as they know themselves. And I may also know things that have touched upon them that they don't know themselves. And that's always very interesting. Very interesting in, in almost as a therapist, when someone comes in, not to your office, but to the office of a therapy, a therapist, that they know more the therapist knows more about their patient than the patient is telling them or knows more than the, the patient thinks they're telling them. Because after all, a patient goes to a therapist to be known. Yes. Well, um, I don't practice anymore as a psychotherapist. And then I trained to be a psychoanalyst and I had patients in psychoanalysis, but I don't have to do any clinical work any longer. But when I trained, I was trained to spend the first few sessions as what we used to call consultation. And we would ask the person all kinds of questions, almost like a journalist, and gather an enormous amount of information. And a, a kind of initial story would emerge. And after that, I would give a recommendation for what I thought, what kind of treatment would be helpful. And then the therapy in a much looser way would begin without my being directive. All of which is to say that that initial story that the patient would tell, and that I would also have my own initial story that I was thinking applied to this patient, they were always wrong. <laughs> they always had to be completely turned upside down, but they were very useful in that there were elements and pieces that came to fold into the the future story and i think that's true when as a novelist too we start off with a glimmer of something a story we want to tell and we start to tell it and it goes off the rails in certain kinds of ways and then and by the time the book is 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 actually here before us um and we go to reread it as i i recently did because i went doing events like this you see all kinds of things in it one sees all kinds of things that 
one didn't know. And that's, for me, one of the great thrills of being a, a novelist is that it's a fantastic way to learn about the world and one's own mind. You sort of write yourself into uh, the next phase of life. I felt have felt that this is my fifth novel with each book that I've come out a, a different person and ready to look at the world in a different way. A turning, Lisa. Maybe a turning, should... exactly. And Lisa, that's so Lisa turns. Andrew turns well, and a turns. Well, you know, um, Andrew, I, I had this title very early on and I really didn't know what it meant. I just knew it was the right title until quite recently. And I realized that what happens in this novel could be encapsulated in that title. Anna turns away from things that are no longer serving her, including a lot of ossified views about the world and people in her family of origin. She turns back to some things that she's left behind and sort of neglected, including her husband and her marriage. And she turns towards some new things in her life. So it's all there in the title. <laughs> we are speaking with Lisa Gornick, uh, one of America's most distinguished and successful novelists. And she has a new book out, out today, Anna Turns. Uh, Lisa, is there critique in the book of, of your world, of the world of New York, of the world of uh, uh, Anna Cole? Well, that's interesting because um, Anna grows up in a much scrappier environment than the one she inhabits now. Uh, her mother has left her father, who is an up-and-coming architect, a starchitect is how people think about him. And she's left him because he's a serial philanderer. And she goes back to live, this is Anna's mother, with um, her own parents who um, have emigrated from Sweden and they run, even though they're Lutherans, they run a Jewish bakery in Baltimore. And so Anna is is five when this happens and her, her brother is eight. And they live with, their, they grow up with their grandparents in in a row house with one bathroom for five people and she makes her way to community college and so on. She ultimately ends up meeting her husband who's from a much more upper middle class family, Great Neck, where everybody goes to Harvard, Princeton, Yale. And she enters into that affluent kind of life in, in New York City. Her brother ends up doing very well economically and he's also living in New York. So there's quite a bit about class in the book and the way they're still living, 88-year-old mother experiences class and money. The book opens with Jean, who's Anna's mother, who's 88, sending her an email and it's an accounting of what it costs to raise Anna and how much money she would have had had she spent it, had she invested it rather than raising Anna. So Anna still carries a lot of awareness of the of class differences and the ways she the 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 length she has traversed in her own life and the length her mother has traversed in her in her life. Does it occur to you or to Anna that in in, in April on April twenty eighth, twenty seventeen, when you write the book, Trump of course is president. Um, that she and her world is an island separated in some ways from many parts of America that are 
that are celebrating this event, whereas in New York, it's mostly considered a catastrophe? Oh, definitely. She's definitely aware of that. And particularly because it's probably being celebrated in the neighborhood where she grew up. And um, she feels very grateful in a way that she understands the world is not uh, circumscribed in the way her current world is so absolutely. And, and I think all of us who were in Manhattan uh, in those first months of the Trump presidency were very aware of that. And, and I know you've interviewed broadly in, in politics and contemporary affairs that lots and lots of people have written about how key it is for um, people in liberal cosmopolitan settings to not dismiss the point of view of rural Americans who may see the whole political landscape in a different way. Lisa, remind us what happened on April the 28th, 2017. I know you did a little bit of research. You perhaps wrote the book first, but then uh, research backwards. Was it a, an unusually... Um, uh, an unusually eventful day or just another day in, in April in 2017? Seems a long time ago now, or six years It really ago. does, doesn't it? And, uh, I, and I hope it'll continue to seem a long time in, in the next year or two that we're not going to go back to that, that terrible year. Well, I, I think it was actually early on because I, I'd like to do the great bulk of my research before I begin to write so that I understand things and then I just let go. I sometimes write two, 300 pages of notes and I rarely look at them while I'm writing. I might go back later drafts to check things. But one of the things I discovered was a small story about a woman named Kayla Greenwood. It's a real person. I've never met her, of course. Um, and she was 22 uh, on that day. Yeah, you're showing a picture of her. And her father... Michael Greenwood had been killed. I, I, I'm afraid I can't remember exactly when, but it was well when she was five, so it was 17 years before, and had been killed by the father of the woman that she's hugging, um, Kenneth Williams, who was a convicted murderer who had escaped from an Arkansas state prison. And during his escape, he, he murdered, I believe it was two other people, but he also crashed a vehicle and it was in that crash that Kayla's father died. In any case, when she learned that Kenneth Williams was going to be executed, she became aware that Williams's daughter, who had not seen her father in many, many years, wanted to come visit him, but didn't have the funds. And she, Kayla and her family paid for an airline ticket to bring Williams's daughter to see her father for a last time. And Kayla also made a plea to um, the governor of, of Arkansas to stay the execution. It was denied, she was unsuccessful. And Williams was executed actually right, I think like 11.57, three minutes or so before my novel begins. So it's on the news that day. And it just is a story that it got under my skin, but it also gets under Anna's skin because she, it's just this extraordinary act of forgiveness and generosity by this 22 year old woman. But it, it also relates to the theme of the book in which um, Kayla is trying to see the world through the eyes of the daughter who's also losing her father 
So, and Anna throughout the book is attempting to understand other people's points of view. And this is just a radically different one that you would fund the airline ticket for the offspring of the person who killed your father. We're talking with Lisa Gornick, the author of Anna Turns, uh, a very interesting new novel that's just out by one of America's leading fiction writers. Um, we're going to take a short break. I want to thank uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for allowing us to put this on. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Lisa Gornick, talk more about the New York of Anna Turns. So don't go away anywhere. Don't turn news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking uh, with Lisa Gornick, the author of Anna Turns, a wonderful new novel that's just out today. Lisa, um, the Taliban show up in the book. I wouldn't have expected them to rear their ugly heads. How did the Taliban get into this New York novel? Well, Anna has been having an affair in the novel for seven years, and this affair comes in the context of her very loving and kind husband having had a, an accident that led to a back injury, which has left their marriage sexless for nine years and also rendered him a pot addict in his attempt to not use opiates to, to deal with his back injury. In any case, she meets this um Gonzo journalist. Uh, she's at the Rubin Museum in downtown New York looking at the collection there and they, they meet there and they end up becoming involved. And he is writing a book about the bombing of the Taliban Buddhas. And this happened in March of 2001 when Mullah Muhammad Omar, a Taliban leader, ordered that they be dynamited. And it was considered an incredible atrocity because they're enormously important Buddhist relics of the sixth century. And in his research, Lance interviews various people who are close to Mullah Muhammad Omar, and he shows Anna a clipping of an interview that, not that he's done, it's a real clipping that I found on reddit.com in which Mullah Omar explains that when at that at the time um basically the the buddhas there were lots of people who were interested in restoring them and this is before he dynamited them and he felt deeply insulted that international workers were willing to come in and restore these buddhas which had no religious meaning to the to the Afghani people. They were they were relics of a short time when Buddhism um, had an appearance in this part of the world. And that he want, wondered why they didn't instead give that money to feed starving children. And he felt so outraged by this, that this was his reason to, to bomb these Buddhas. And they were really utterly destroyed. And 
So Lance is trying to write this story, not in any way to condone this. As he says, the bombing didn't put a grain of rice in anyone's mouth, um, but rather to help people to understand what is Lance's thesis, which is that no one does anything for no reason. So that's how come they end up. And it thematically links with other issues in the book. It's a work of art, of course, and that theme the Taliban of utility versus art also, I think, um, characterizes the book. Um, some of the one of the most uh, memorable scenes in, in the novel uh, takes place at the Met uh, uh, in front of The Storm by Pierre-Auguste Cote. I, I have to admit I hadn't been familiar with this work of art. Why did you choose this uh, particular painting? Um, uh, Lisa, and, and, and I don't want to ruin the story for everyone, but what broadly takes place? What's the significance of this scene? Well, the scene is significant because um, very early in Anna's relationship with her husband, they're both living in Philadelphia in graduate, she's in graduate school, he's in medical school, he's a resident, and they, they go together to New York for an afternoon and he takes her to see this painting and it's one of his favorite paintings. He's visited many years, many, many times over the years. And she looks at it at first and she thinks it's just cliched and trite and, uh, and she doesn't like it at all. And it's later when he begins to describe the complexity of what's going on in this painting that she, she understands the depth, Henry's depth, and feels very abashed at her um, immediate dismissal of it. So that's why, why it's there. She later goes on, the, on her birthday, she herself goes to see the painting again. And it's part of her turn <laughs> sort of back towards her husband. So in a way, it's rather like perhaps reading a novel that you, at first it seems obvious, and the more you read, the more depth, the more levels, the more interesting it becomes. I think so. I think so, which is a good argument for rereading novels uh, or seeing films or, or paintings. Or going to museums. I mean, one of the unique things I think about New York, certainly compared to much of the rest of the country, is its wealth of museums. And uh, we might end with an incident in the Met uh, that I know is close to your heart in terms of the narrative and perhaps um, captures the spirit of the novel and, 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 and the spirit of the times uh, of 2017. Well, Anna goes to the Met on, on her birthday. She meets her um, transitioning adult child there, and they walk through the Greek and Roman galleries, and she looks at all of these depictions of bodies and is aware of how very complicated and layered it is. First of all, they've been viewed by for centuries as Aryan ideals, whereas in fact she knows that originally those statues were painted, many skin tones, they were not intended to be Aryan ideals. And when she looks at these bodies, she's able to think about her adult child's body and how it does not belong to her, how it belongs to them, and she has to allow that to happen. Let's end um, 
by going back to the theme I introduced about decline, we talked with John Gray earlier today, his book, The New Leviathans, talks about the crisis or a post-liberal world. And then Rob Copeland talked about um, Ray Dalio epitomizing the corruption of, of, of Wall Street finance. What do you, conclusion would you like people to take away from, from your novel about the health of our, of our culture broadly? Well, um, I recently heard a story that a very famous psychoanalyst, I'm not going to name who, um, was summoned by the Pope for a meeting in order to try to understand the psychological underpinnings of authoritarianism. And I was very tickled by that and pleased by that also because I do think that we need to try to understand the world um, as deeply and richly as we can. We absolutely have to understand history. We have to understand the sociology of our country. And I think we need to understand the psychology of how people work, both so that we can understand others, but to find a path for uh, resolution. You know, we have such grave divides and differences and camps. I mean, we're certainly experiencing it right now with the Middle East. And that it seems to me that a couple of ideas I think are embodied in the book. One is the idea of generosity over fairness. There is no fairness in the world. And if we let go of that, we may find a more generous path. And also that we can all stand on principle but that there is a larger principle, which is to sometimes find peace, which means letting go of our individual principles. So I guess I would say to circle back to what you're talking about, that I see um, psychology, psychoanalysis, deep psychology, politics, history, economics, as all really needing to be in conversation with each other. And and I, I try to do that a little bit in Anna Turns and, um, and I know you try to do that all the time on this show. And Lisa, if, uh, as the polls yesterday seems to suggest, that Donald Trump does get reelected, um, will this really make any difference to the New York that you know, that you write about, the New York of high-end museums, of therapists, of Columbia University, um, of people having extramarital affairs with one another. Won't that world continue? Or do you think it's profoundly challenged if, if Trump comes back? You, you, you talked about April 2017 being the America being shell-shocked by Trump, suggesting you wouldn't. I, I agree with you. I don't want him coming back to power. But if he does, what, what will be the difference? Well, um, ironically, affluent people may become even more affluent, but I think for anyone who has a daughter, you're going to be concerned about uh, reproductive rights. I think for anyone who has a transitioning loved one, you're going to be concerned about that. I think that all of our human rights are going to be um, deeply challenged. That's one. I also think that we're going to be in a really dangerous situation internationally. I mean, <laughs> imagine what would have happened if Trump had been in power on October 7th. Who knows? And or or what he would do in the Ukraine. So 
Yes, I think that um, people in New York are in some ways sheltered, but we we all live in this world and are impacted by international affairs. And um, I guess I, I don't see, I don't think there really is an island where that, in which people live separately.